On this episode of the Culture Pop Podcast, we are joined by producer and executive Gail Berman. She was president at Fox, president at Paramount, and she produced this year's blockbuster Elvis. Plus, is breaking news on local and network news actually breaking news at all? And Andrew Garfield and method acting for Martin Scorsese's new film, Silence. Don't forget, you can subscribe to the Culture Pop Podcast on Apple, Spotify, and at SteveMason.com. And do us a favor, take a minute, leave us a rating and a review. The Culture Pop Podcast is brought to you by the law offices of Jacob Imrani. Accident or injury, call Jacob Imrani, call Jacob. Hey, it's Mace. If you or a friend or loved one is injured in an accident, the first person you should call is my friend Jacob. When I did this, Jacob was great. He helped me by talking through the next steps, which really put my mind at ease. When you're injured in an accident, you got to have an expert. That's why you call Jacob, just like I did. Call Jacob, 844-24-JACOB. That's 844-24-JACOB. Or visit calljacob.com. Call Jacob. Hi, everybody. Welcome to the Culture Pop Podcast. I'm Steve Mason. That's Sue Kalinske. Sue, how you feeling? What's going on? I know today we've got uh, a friend of yours on the show, Gail Berman, who has among the most impressive resumes I have ever seen. It's mind-blowing. I've president known her. I've, Fox, I've, president of Paramount. I mean, crazy. It's crazy. I grew up with her. I know her since elementary school. And look how it all turned out for her. I know. Yeah, that's great. That's great. So we got her coming up, and I'm really excited about that. Uh, in the meantime, Sue, what do you got going there? Well, this is just a, just something I want to throw out to you. So okay. I'm watching the news the other night, right? And um, news news programs seem to um, get very a little full of themselves when there's a story that comes on, and they're like, seen only on Fox 11. You know, it's like... Who were they trying to impress? It's true. I mean, isn't it their job to find these stories? And do, do they really think that listeners really give a shit whether they're the only one who had the story? That is absolutely true. So we run into this in sports, interestingly, mm-hmm. all the time. Mm-hmm. There are some experts. Uh, I'll just choose. I'll choose uh, baseball. No, I'll, mm-hmm. cho- I'll choose the NBA. So there are a lot of really big experts. There's one at Yahoo named Shams Charania. There's one at ESPN named Woj, Adrian Wojnarowski. And they race to be the first one to report that this free agent signed or that free agent signed. And I'm like, I, I care less about you getting first and more about you telling me what I really need to know. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> yes. Like yeah. I was watching the news one night, this is a few years back. I was living in Westwood and uh, I, they ran a promo during whatever we were watching it. And the promo was like killer loose in Westwood details at 11. And all I could think was I'm in Westwood. Tell me where the killer is right now. Why am I waiting to 11 to find out where the killer is and what, and what he looks like, all that stuff. Oh, that's hysterical. Um, yeah, I mean, and, and they, they all do it. You know, yes. they, they all just, you know, like pat themselves on the back, you know, for, for this information. And it's like, I don't really care. You know, it's like, well, and it's it, like cable news. That's another good example. Has there ever not been breaking news on cable news <laughs> in the last 
I mean, I don't care what's going on. It says breaking news. There's a, and I, I mean, you're doing the same story you were doing the last segment, the segment before that. What is well, exactly is breaking? Exactly. That's, that's the thing. It's, it's on a loop. Yeah. It's like yeah. every hour you're telling us that it broke. And it's like, you know what? It broke last night. Right. And <laughs> you're still talking about the same shit. Yeah. yeah. So, so anyway. And, yeah. Uh, local news is funny. News is, yeah, it's funny the way they do their. Business. So Andrew Garfield, um, he's love in, Andrew Garfield. Oh, he's great. He's, he's terrific. Awesome. So he's in uh, a new movie um, called Silence. Uh, it's Scorsese's new movie. Wow. Okay. And uh, he reveals that he went celibate for six months and undertook fasting in preparation for the role. Mm. Okay. Mm-hmm. So you know, people on Twitter and, you know, all social media, like, you know, we're posting stuff like, um, and this was a quote from Lawrence Olivier that somebody had. It is a hundred percent true. He said it to Dustin Hoffman when they were making marathon, man, read the quote. Right. My dear boy, have you tried acting? (laughs) Cause marathon man, Dustin Hoffman was just punishing himself because remember he got his teeth drilled and and it stayed up all night. So he would look a mess and all that. (laughs) Olivier's like, Hey, acting. Yeah. Remember that? Uh-huh. Acting. And someone else wrote, uh, sometimes it's good to remember that in the 30s and 40s, actors would just read lines from the script and pretend. Now, <laughs> I, I really, I have no issue with this. And I know that there are, like, we, we've talked about it, how, you know, somebody, you know, uses prosthetics and people, you know, lose, you know, gain a lot of weight or lose a lot of weight. It's like, Whatever an actor needs to do to do the part, then just let him do it. And, uh, you know, the criticism to me is a little ridiculous. So here's here's the thing. Actually, we asked uh, on our last show, Russell Hornsby, about, you know, the method, method acting. And I have no issue with the concept of method af- af- acting. In other words, if Andrew Garfield is in a safe way, um, fasting. Now the celibate part, I mean, I've done that six months celibate. <laughs> right. I mean, he's, he's got to answer to his wife about that. <laughs> exactly. One. Exactly. But in terms of, uh, fasting, as long as it's safe, like for example, Christian Bale made a movie called the machinist. I don't know if you ever saw this sure. thing, mm-hmm. uh, but he ended up weighing like 96 pounds and was, you know, all skin and bones. And I'm like, you, you don't need to do that. You don't need to starve yourself to that degree. Or Matthew McConaughey, you know, starved himself for uh, Dallas Buyers Club. And honestly, you know, it's back at normal weight, but has never looked the same. Yes. But, you know, then you look at Ben Foster, who was in that movie where he played the boxer and yes. he was in, in a concentration camp. And he had to lose a lot of weight. No, I order, understand that. In order to play that role. I mean, yeah. you can't, you know, be like hefty and be in a concentration camp. Okay. But here's the thing. I mean, Brian Cox talked about this mm-hmm. uh, when he talked about Jeremy Strong and his process on succession. And he said, I'm worried about Jeremy. Um, he tortures himself to be able to play this role. And it's just not necessary. So it can be carried to an extreme. Like, for example, uh, another example, Shia LaBeouf just got uh, kicked out, or I guess over the last year, got kicked out of Olivia Wilde's new movie because he was playing an a-hole in the movie and he decided he would play an a-hole all the time 
even when the cameras weren't rolling. So there's a line. I understand the method, but I think there is a line that, you know, where it can be done safely and without treating the crew and everybody badly. Oh, yeah. Yeah, totally. Um, I I remember years ago that movie um, Down and Out in Beverly Hills. Oh, sure. um, um, Nick Nolte, apparently, well, he played a homeless character and apparently he didn't shower like the entire months of shooting. And then somebody said, well, I probably didn't shower anyway. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if it was really preparation for the I, role. I did see his mugshot and uh, <laughs> he definitely did not shower on that day. Yeah. All right. Let's get to the main course here. All right. Our guest is a producer and executive who spent five years as the president at Fox, two years as the president of Paramount Pictures. Her fingerprints are on shows like Malcolm in the Middle, American Idol, Arrested Development, Prison Break. Buffy the Vampire Slayer, and on and on. She served as executive producer for the worldwide hit Boz Lorman's Elvis earlier this year, and her latest project is the Tim Burton series Wednesday, based on the Adams Family character. Gail Berman is here. Gail, thank you so much for doing this. Oh, my pleasure, Steve. Thanks for having me. So you have got such an amazing career. I mean, I don't even know where to start. Um, where, what are, I'm old, Steve. That's where you start. No, I mean, you've, 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 you're so much that you've accomplished. Um, and I'm just curious, sort of as a baseline, what are some of the shows and the movies that you watched when you were young that were really influential in, in your sense of taste? Oh, what a good question. Um, Well, I grew up, uh, as Sue knows, in uh, Long Island, uh, middle class family in Long Island. And uh, my parents took me to the theater a lot, the Broadway theater. Um, So I grew up on a series of uh, straight plays that we went to see because that was my father's preference. So Slow Dance on the Killing Ground, any Wednesday. I mean, things that an eight-year-old, seven-year-old shouldn't even be seeing. (laughs) Um, And so that was my uh, introduction into the arts. And I was a pretty lonely kid. And so I watched the Million Dollar Movie every every weekend and the Four O'Clock Movie every day. So I was um, extremely influenced by uh, 1950s and and 60s melodramas that cost very little money to put on Channel 5, which is why they put them on. And I watched a lot of them repeatedly over and over and over again, because in the Million Dollar Movie, you get to watch it a few times in a row, and I did. So I learned uh, learned a lot about drama and melodrama from, from those two sources probably uh, more than most eight or nine-year-olds. And um, that became my uh, baseline for how I looked at things. Um, my mother would occasionally take me with her B'nai Breath group to a musical. Mm-hmm. But mostly um, I grew up on drama and melodrama. So growing up as a kid in Belmore, Long Island. I did, indeed. A Navy place, 2515 Navy place. That's right. Did you ever think this would be your life today? Well, funnily enough, uh, no, of course, I never could have anticipated this. But I knew once I went to the theater, I knew my life would be in the theater. That's like I knew it immediately. I didn't know what that meant. I didn't know how um, how that would happen. But I knew that that is what I needed to do. 
And so for my whole life, uh, getting into the New York theater was my whole objective. And then when I did get into the New York theater and spent the first decade of my life doing that, and then realized to myself, is that all there is? That was, that was a very devastating time for me because what if you planned on doing something and you actually did it and then you did it a lot and then you thought, oh my God, I'm still young and maybe there's something else. And that was a very, that was a difficult time. Yeah. It's funny. I interviewed Neil Armstrong years ago and Neil was like, you know, I, I said, it must've been amazing to be on the moon. And he said, yeah, it was, but like, where do you go from there? <laughs> like, where do you go from the moon? How do you, how do you possibly top that? I never quite looked at myself as having gone to the moon, which would, would have been pretty amazing. But, but, but I think the, the feeling is something I could appreciate in my own terms, which was, this was my whole goal. This was everything I thought about, dreamed about. And then I did it. And then I did it again and again several times during that decade. I was very young when I started. And then I was like, oh boy, wow, I'm just going to keep doing this? Like, that's hard. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That was scary. I mean, you were, you were like a baby. I mean, you were, what, 23 when you uh, yeah, did Joseph uh, in the Mason Technical? When we first technical. started doing Joseph in Washington, I think it was 22. And then when it came to New York, I was 23 or 24 or something. Yeah. Like, how did you even know how to do this at that age? Well, I didn't. Um, Susan Rose, who uh, was my partner, had seen the show at uh, the Alney Theater in Washington, D.C., uh, outside of Washington, D.C. It was the Summer Theater of Catholic University. I, I had just moved to New York. I was newly, we were newly graduated from college. And she said, I've seen this show. And she called me to ask me questions because I was a little bit of a savant in, in the theater pre, pre, uh, Wikipedia. I, this was my Wikipedia. And, um, you know, we started to talk about it. My parents were living in Baltimore at the time, which is where Susan was. And, my soon-to-be husband was in that area, too. So I came down to talk to her about this, the idea of moving this show to perhaps Ford's Theater in Washington. And that's how it started. And I, I literally didn't go back. Hmm. I just started to work on it with her. And, you know, it was a Mickey-Judy operation. We didn't have any money. We had to raise $150,000. I mean, we had to do everything, and it was all that look at these two girls, you know, kind of fun moment in time. And, you know, we were, uh, we were these young, energetic young people who had a dream and, and the dream happened. And we produced it at Ford's Theater in Washington. It opened in April of 1980. And um, it ran for nine months in Washington. And what we didn't know, because we were dumb and didn't have any ideas about anything was that the grosses the weekly grosses started to appear in variety because mm. variety would post the grosses from theaters around the country we had no idea and people started to call us about what was going on at ford's theater in washington which normally did no business and here was this show that was doing business so that's that's how the New York part of it started to get attention. So you go from 
is that all there is to television? And when you were at Regency Television, one of your, I think one of your big shows was Malcolm in the Middle, right? Was. Um, yes, I left producing in the theater and I started to work at a, at a place called the Comedy Channel, uh, which was a brand new cable channel that was putting together this eclectic group of people. Uh, and I was, you know, somebody called me about it and I had never had a job since I graduated from college. I'd never worked for anybody. Um, and so this was like, well, I don't know how to do that. And anyway, long story short, that's how it starts. And eventually my husband and I go to California and I work for a company called Sand Dollar, which is where I did Buffy Vampire Slayer and Angel and a couple of other things. And then I went to Regency and that's where I did Malcolm. Yes. So how do you know that a show is going to be, because you're, you're in the position to produce and to green light and all that kind of stuff. Um, how do you know a show is going to work? Is it, is it just your sense of it, your sense of, uh, style, your collaboration, the talent involved, the director, the showrunner, some combination of that? Like what, what, what is it that, that makes you say, yep, that's, that's something I want to do? Well, it's different in every case. Um, you know, in the case of Malcolm, this was a script that was sitting on my desk one day. And it's a spec script that was written by Linwood Boomer. I didn't know Linwood. Uh, he had gotten new agents and those agents were sending it out as a writing sample. And I read the script and I thought, this is the funniest script I've ever read. <laughs> and I was like, you know, this is great. Why isn't, you know, why isn't anybody doing this? And there's a million things. But basically, I just read it and said, I, I laughed from the first page to the last page. And generally in a comedy, that's a good thing. And mm -hmm. a million times I've read comedies and I haven't laughed at all. So, um, you know, then you have to put together this magical thing that's like the, you don't ruin it. Chances are you will ruin it. Um, mostly the statistics tell us that as soon as somebody moves on it, it will get bad. And, um, in this particular case, we got notes and notes and more notes and eventually, and no, this, this is very, very odd. What we shot was that script that was on my desk hmm, after wow. all the development and all the things. That's what we wound up shooting. And, you know, Todd Howland came on to direct and Linwood was the showrunner. And we had these, this amazing cast that was put together by Mary Buck and Susan Edelman. And it was Frankie and Jane and, you know, uh, Brian Cranston. And I mean, it was just this amazing group of people. And, you know, then this magical thing happens and it is magical. It's like, oh my God, we didn't ruin this. It's, it's just <laughs> this perfect thing that came together. And then you test it and you find out everybody hates it, you know, and then you go, okay, well, you can't test comedies because, you know, I don't believe it. I think everybody will love this. And in fact, that's what happened with Malcolm. I want to, you, you talk about testing and people ruining stuff because I, I work in TV and there have been many times where we think something is really great, whether it's a title 
or it's the nature of the project. And then it goes to the focus groups. Right. <laughs> um, and have there, have there been times where it, it seemed glaring that the focus groups were saying, you know, you got to change the ending or you have to do this. And you were like, no. I mean, because I don't, I, I can't imagine that they get it right all the time. They don't get it right all the time. In fact, they get it less right in comedies, I have found. In dramas, I always find that you can get some really interesting information from a focus group. They're more accurate for a drama. It's a, it's a longer storytelling process, so they get more information. And generally speaking, they're, they're a traditional uh, kind of storytelling, where most dramas traditionally in television have been. Not so much now. It's a little bit different. But um, on the comedy front, when you're trying to do something a little different or irreverent, you know, like a mother running around with no shirt on, as as Lois did in the opening sequence of Malcolm, you know, with her laundry basket in front of her, opening the door, and you know, the audience is appalled. They're not really appalled; they're laughing. But they, in the group setting, it's like, oh, this woman was running around without a top on. That's bad. And so you do have to take it with a grain of salt. You can learn some things, and I certainly have learned many things in focus groups or. At, Bigger testing is generally a focus group is not that great a way to test and, and less and less people test that way now. But, um, but you can learn some things and then you can find out some things that you should have paid attention to that you decided to disregard and maybe it would have been better to listen. And so you sort of have to use it as a, as a tool in the arsenal, but it's, it's really not the Bible. And some people take it as the Bible. So it can right. be destructive. I, I just one second, I, I, Steve. I see you, you're jumping at the bit here. I just wanted to ask you one other question. When it comes to, it's kind of in this in this area. Um, sometimes a show is maybe a slow burn um, that maybe maybe people don't catch on on right away. Like like Seinfeld, for example, when it first came out, I think it only got like a four episode order, and it wasn't very very popular when it first came out i had terrible testing terrible and and then look what happened i worked on a show years and years ago it was a reality show called anchor woman it was a fox show and um and it was basically a story about a a, a like a model who they plopped into a news station in texas to try to make her be an anchor woman just to see if she can do it. And she did. And she was really good. The first, they aired the first two episodes. They, when it premiered, they've aired both episodes. It got canceled the next day. And having worked on the show and knowing what was coming down the pike, because the other episodes that were, that were coming up were brilliant. I mean, the show was really great. Um, do you, how, I mean, how do you, how do you prevent canceling a show when you know it's really great like what's the argument there i mean i guess you kind of have to go with with what you know the the viewership of people weren't watching it then it's like because it's expensive right right well it's expensive and you know i've sat on both sides of it i've sat on the side of it as the producer and i've sat on the side of it as the network president so um both positions are difficult because the you really want to help people get their work out there. That's your job as the, as the head of the network. On the one hand, on the other hand, 
if it doesn't get a rating and you've got other things lined up that you can put on and you can change your your um, destiny as uh, as as where you are as a network, that's your obligation. And so it's a de- it's a delicate balance between figuring out is this thing does this thing have legs, or you know I've got better stuff uh, behind it. And so I got to move on. And and it's it's a cruel it's 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 very difficult. I mean, you know the the calls you have to make are not fun. They're yeah. not you know the cruelty of it is not lost on me. Hmm. So you go to Fox Entertainment as president of entertainment, and that's got to be a pressure cooker of of a job. You're responsible for the primetime lineup, and at that time, network programming was the only show in town. So this is before Netflix and Hulu and all that stuff. But I want to ask you specifically about American Idol, uh, which happened during your tenure. My understanding is a lot of people passed uh, in this town. A lot of people said, yeah, no, not singing show, not really. You said yes, and it became a game changer, right? Yeah, it, it changed the entire destiny of Fox uh, and uh, my tenure there. And, you know, we were really struggling. And I'll put it in some context for you. Everyone had passed on the show. And when we got the show, it was pitched to us and it was pitched to Mike Darnell and Darnell came to see me and talked to me about it. And we were in a a situation where we needed summer programming because we didn't have anything and we needed someone to pay for it. In other words, we didn't even have the money for it. Hmm. And so the question was, and this is what we asked the producers and the and and CAA, who at the time was the agency representing it. Could we get this show sponsored by an advertiser? And so we said we really wanted it, but we were looking for a way to pay for it. And the show, so we didn't buy it right away because we didn't have money to pay for it. And during the me- in the meantime, the show premiered in the UK. Rupert had seen it, or his family had seen it in the UK, got in touch with my boss, Peter Chernin. Peter Chernin called me and said, what's going on with that show? And I said, we're waiting to see if we can put the financing together. Because remember, you told me we don't have any money. And he goes, just, just close the deal. Just close the deal. And, and that is... Uh, that's how it happened. Hmm. And so everyone had passed. It wasn't like we were clinging on for dear life. It was like, hey, can we figure out who can pay for this? Because <laughs> we can't. And then we wound up paying for it. And that was, you know, I get so sucked into it. So sucked into American Idol, my whole family. It was like a, a multi-generational show. Um, I still remember Kelly Clarkson uh, winning that first year. And I, you know, she was such a great performer. Uh, but that's the thing I liked is my grandmother was watching American Idol and my mom was, and I was, and my friends yeah. were, and it became just a, a phenomenon. I want to ask you specifically about Simon Cowell, who was like a key component of American Idol. So apparently you, you tell me that the contract or the way you dealt with Simon Cowell, it, it ended up in his favor, didn't it? What do you mean it ended up? Um, I, I'd heard, and you, you tell me if I'm wrong, that he didn't want to sign a contract at first and the be- show became really big. And then 
he did sign a contract for more money than he might have otherwise. Do I have any of that right? I really don't recall that, to tell you the truth. I don't know that we would put somebody on the air that didn't have a contract. I guess it's possible we only had a a, a seasonal contact, contract with him. I really don't remember. Um, I can tell you that in the beginning, we weren't sure if he was going to be able to do it. Mm. And we started to look for other Simon Cowell types. Uh, because I called up my former boss who's passed away uh, now, Sandy Gallen, and I said, uh, you know, you could be this kind of guy because you're mean. <laughs> and <laughs> um, anyway, Simon wound up doing it. He wound up becoming a huge star from doing it in the States. The show was, it was remarkable. I, I mean, it was insane what happened. I was there with my parents and my kids and everyone sitting behind Kelly and her parents, uh, sitting behind Kelly's parents at the, at the finale. And then, you know, she sings, you know, a moment like this and the confetti. confetti uh, and, yeah. I mean, it was, it was really a moment in time. It was a moment like this. It was uh, an amazing game changer for us. I mean, it was, Something that's very rare in life where you go, oh, my God, this just changes everything. And it did. The, it was a juggernaut. Nobody, I mean, nobody could compete against yeah, it. Yeah. And so the show we saw, is that the show that was, was pitched? Is that the final you know, were there were there changes that were made? Yeah, to there it? were some changes that were made. Uh, we tried to stay as close to the British format as possible, uh, but we had to change the name. We couldn't call it, it was called Pop Idol there. We had to change the name because there had been a show similarly titled that had failed. And I think the name American Idol, this is post 9-11. There are a lot of things that the psychology of where the country was at that moment came into play for this because we were healing as a nation. We were, uh, we were uh, sort of very together. You know, people were feeling hurt and uh, and the country needed something to sort of get behind. And this was called American Idol. People from all over the country, different areas, you could vote. It didn't cost you anything to vote if you used a hardline phone at the time. you know. And so your grandmother could vote, you could vote, the kids could vote. And everyone was doing their thing and you could call in as many times as you wanted <laughs> during that limited period of time. So a lot of decisions that we made, which were the right decisions, and they were argued intensely, well, we could make money from the phone call, all of that stuff. And ultimately, and people, the press was like, there's a, there's a, I smell a rat here. And, you know, there's no <laughs> way this is, and it all was the way it was. And they they were sniffing around, and there's there's some story. I'm like, there isn't. How about this? There's the story is there's no story. We don't want to provide any barriers of entry for anyone who wants to participate in this program. So, dad, mom, kids, grandparents have their own choice. They get to vote as many times as they are able to get in, and and it was. Um, it was fun and it was real. People loved that it was that and real. And every generation uh, in American television history has had its own version of this kind of thing. You know, Major Bows, you go, you go back there, radio, et cetera. And of course, 
Star Search, Sue and I would remember Star Search. So this was not a new phenomenon. This was actually just, as we like to say, something old with a new twist, really. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you at the time, it was, it was monumental. And it was definitely life-changing for the network and for me in many ways. So you you wind up at Paramount Pictures after this, and you spent two years there. I, I'm assuming you, you probably know my best friend who since passed away, uh, Don Harris, who was the president of distribution uh, at uh, at Paramount. Wonderful guy. Where did you feel more pressure? Was it uh, president of entertainment at a television network or being responsible for a slate of movies at a studio? Well, I was um, <laughs> I was the queen of the May when I went to Paramount, having done, uh, you know, taken Fox to number one. When I got to Paramount, within ten weeks, I knew that I made a terrible, terrible error hmm. and a big mistake in my career. That it was a disaster. Um, the people running the joint were. Hmm, Less than honorable, let's put it that way. Mm. And um, it wound. I wound up going from <laughs> from being the it girl to the oh that girl, you know. That's mm. you know. And so, a lot of my tenure at Paramount was just about saving my career and getting out. Mm. So it. I didn't. My experience was uh, not good. My experience at Fox was incredibly difficult and incredibly stressful, but incredibly fabulous. I just can't even imagine running something so huge. Like, how did you have time to do anything else in your life? I mean, I I couldn't, I have no life when I'm just like running post on a show. How, How do you manage that? Well, my husband and I, my husband is Bill Masters, who knows that. Uh, I was a writer and a comedian, and we had to make a decision for the family. It was a very difficult decision, which was, um, you know, Bill couldn't run a show anymore because the hours were too devastating, and it was one or the other. I mean, we had to literally sit down like a real married couple and go over everything and say, what is the best thing for our family? And once... Once you step off the merry-go-round, as you know, Sue, it's very difficult to get back on. And so for my husband, uh, who was at the time running a show, and um, it was, it, these were very difficult choices. Hmm. But you make them for your kids because, you know, that's what, that's what you're supposed to do. You're the parents. And so he, that, that was a very critical decision in our family's lives. And um, that's the only way that I could do it is to know that I had a, a, a partner at home that was taking care of a lot of things that I couldn't take care of. Yeah. It's a 24 yeah. hour, seven day a week job. There's just no, other. I never left the country during the entire time. I couldn't, I was so, you know, I just, I just, <laughs> just stayed here. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it was that difficult, but I loved it too. And I loved my kids and my husband too. So it was, it was like, okay, how do we do all this? Right, right. So now we live in an era of streaming and I don't watch 
much network. I, I think I, Abbott Elementary is the one show that I'm looking at on really network, nice which, which I think is show. really I good. They, uh, ABC really captured something there. But I mean, somebody's watching NCIS and Don Wolf or Dick Wolf still has shows all over NBC. Is network TV, what, what's it going to be in 10 years? Well, an interesting thing happened last week. Uh, NBC proposed that they were thinking about dropping their 10 o'clock hour. Now, that was very, very big news um, because obviously the thought of giving that hour back to the affiliates is, well, Fox never had the 10 o'clock hour, so I didn't have to deal with that. Um, but for NBC, that's a very big deal. And they're basically saying, maybe we can't make enough money to support the big dramas that we do at 10 o'clock. And so that's a shot across the bow about what the future looks like. Uh, now, whether they choose to do it or not, just the mere floating of the idea is a, is, is a is sort of a devastating thing for network television. Uh, I don't think it, I think it'll be here in 10 years. It's just, it's just never going to be the same. It's not the same. Um, and, you know, it becomes a have and have not story. And that's the part about it that's sad because a lot of people like network television. Certainly an older audience likes it. Not everyone has every streamer and, you know, the ability to have this kind of disposable income and, it, it's that's a, it's a fantasy that doesn't exist for yeah. the average guy. I mean, I, I always like to tell the story of about what happened when my, every month when my father paid the bills. My father would sit at the dining room table and ro- and lay out the bills. And you know, if you had made a long distance call, you just did not want to <laughs> be in anywhere in his peripheral vision. You just didn't want to be there. <laughs> and it was like, you know, you ran for the hills when that thing went out. And that's the way most people are. And so I know it because I lived it. And it's, you know, that's the way an average family takes a look at what this month is going to be like. Right. And who's getting to the top of that list to write a check to or pay online to or whatever. So there is some modern version of my father laying that stuff out. It, that's and if you know that you know that that's the way most most folks live. So the idea that you have uh, any more than perhaps one, even yes. two streamers, it's a fantasy. Like oh yeah, you know no people don't do that. Maybe if you're a family with children, maybe you're going to go for that extra couple of bucks for Disney Plus because that's meaningful to the larger group in the family. You know you like. Marvel and you like uh, um, Mickey Mouse and and that makes sense. But a lot of this other stuff makes no sense. And that's the, therein lies the rub of all of it because there it's an unsustainable business in the long run, all of this stuff. So, and you know, Netflix got, you know, got it right in the eye because yeah. at a certain point, that's the level of subscriber even internationally, which is what Wall Street used to talk about. Well, there's an unlimited international growth. There's never unlimited growth. And you can never produce anything on a single revenue stream, which you learn if you run a broadcast company. Mm. And I did prior to uh, 
retransmission fees, etc. So it was only an advertiser-based company. You need to be able to make revenue anywhere you can get it. So subscribers, ad-based, et cetera, et cetera. And that's the, that's the difficult piece of putting all of this together. And others will fall by the wayside. It's, it's an unsustainable thing. So everybody can't have a service that is, is going to reach the amount of money you need to make through a subscriber base to produce quality programming as expensive as, uh, you know, something we know about programming is it never gets any cheaper. Hmm. Always talk about low, what about lower cost programming? Yeah. Well, good luck with that. (laughs) Um, you know, so, um, lower cost programming is available on TikTok. And it's available on YouTube and it's very popular. So, you know, that's where your lower cost programming is. It's not going to be on the streamers. Right. And you're starting to see, I mean, recently it was some soap opera. I don't know if it was as the world turned. It was one of the soap operas that has been on the air for like 50 something years. It's leaving network television and going to a streamer. Yeah. And, and that, that'll be the, the model that can sustain it. Um, there was a time when, when, these producers, I think they bought, maybe it was General Hospital, I don't remember which one it was, where they were going to put it online. And of course, it, it was a terrible failure. And it was unfortunate because, you know, I think it left a lot of people burned. But, um, you know, these everything costs money to do these things. And um, in the average household, and I, I don't know the stats, somebody does, but I don't. You know, there's only a limited amount of dispense, uh, disposable income. Right. And how are you going to spend it and be able to, you know, pay your bills and, and have a quality life in your, inside your home? Well, it's not going to be with 15 services. Yeah. Yeah. Regular. Yeah. We're, I mean, we live in LA. We've done really well in our lives. We can have Hulu and Disney Plus and all of them. But yeah, the average guy, I mean, the average guy, a lot of people, and I always find this amazing, don't even have cable. You know, don't, don't even, I mean, they're still getting over well, the now, broadcast. Now, cable, now, you know, my children know how to live completely without any of that. You know, they, they are not, they are, they have long ago disconnected from any wired anything. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So one of my favorite movies this year was Elvis, uh, directed by, by Boz Norman, executive produced by you. What an amazing project. What a visual, spectacular. I mean, Austin Butler was great. How did all this come together for for you? And what's it like working with, I mean, like a legit genius like Baz Luhrmann? Well, I'm so glad you mentioned Baz. He is um, amazing. The The whole vision thing here was Elvis Baz. That was the whole idea. It wasn't, oh, let's do a biopic on Elvis and then figure it out. That was not the way this came around. It was, wouldn't it be great to see a movie about Elvis directed by Baz? Hmm. So that was, there weren't 14 ideas. That was the only idea. And that was about 10 years ago. And that's how long it took to get it done. But boy, didn't he do an amazing Oh, so God. great. Every second was just like Thank you. spectacular. I, I just, uh, I think he's an incredible filmmaker. 
I love the lushness of his movies and his music. And anyway, I, um, you know, you sometimes my kids used to call this project my hobby because I would have my, <laughs> my work, my other work. And then there was this hobby thing that would go on in the background. And then the hobby finally happened. So um, something I'm very, very proud of, very. And it was my honor to work with Baz and CM, Catherine Martin, his wife, who is his production designer and costume de designer, and um, Tom Hanks and Austin, of course, getting to be the star that he's now going to be. It's yeah. really amazing. It's been great. I'm in Cannes and London and Memphis and all of it. And the family uh, who was not involved in the making of the film, but once they saw it, uh, they really came on board. And that was amazing. Got to know Priscilla and Lisa. And I mean, it's really been quite a ride. So you said 10 years, 10 years you were developing this film. Within the 10 years, what, what, what changed? Like, were there other actors that you were considering? And how many actors did you audition for, for Elvis, for the role? Well, screen tested, uh, there were really only like five. Um, but, um, you know, a lot of actors were talked about and, you know, Baz talked to some people. Um, it, it was always for 10 years, my hope that Tom Hanks would be the colonel. So I know that's, Sounds like I'm lying, but I'm not. It was Baz Luhrmann directing. Tom Hanks would be the colonel. And then we could get somebody new or newish to, to do Elvis. That was my, that's how I saw it. Yeah. And um, that's what came to pass, which <laughs> I think when I told Tom Hanks, <laughs> I didn't know him before this. I, you know, it's not like I, it's not like I pal around with these folks. Um, I told him, you know, I knew it was going to be you. Like I, you know, that was my, that was in my head. I think he looked at me like I was nuts, but anyway, it's true. I, I, I mean, I'm sure he was like, you know, get this woman out of here. But I was like, no, no, this was all, this is how it was all going to be in my head. So, <laughs> so you go from working with, and I think I have this right. You're working with Tim Burton now, right? On, well, on I, I want to put that in some context. Okay. Um, I have done the um, Adams Family animated films one and two, and through that have become involved in this live action project, which is really Al Goff and Miles Millar. So they're the, they're the showrunners. Mm -hmm. So I am attached to it as a as an EP, but I don't want to make it like this was my my uh, that I was the queen of the May here. That is not true. So they've done an incredible job and it's, it's going to blow you. The show is great. Mm. great. And Tim Burton directed. I mean, it's great. I, I think it's, I, I hope it will be a big hit for Netflix. Hmm. So when you say you're attached as EP, but those guys are really the thing. Um, how involved are you creatively? I, in that one or in mm -hmm. just in general? In, in that, that, one. In, in that, in that one. one. They've been kind enough to allow me to read the scripts and I've talked to Alan and Miles, but I I, I always like to uh, make sure that people understand where the hierarchy is in anything. And in this one, this is, this is their baby and they've done it. I think an incredible job with it. So I wouldn't say that I was in the, in the, uh, 
you know, hierarchy of the creative mix. Yeah. So, I mean, you've had, I mean, we're just are in the midst of just a, an amazing, amazing career. I'm curious about what you aspire to. a new show to. coming on September 11th. Oh, yeah. Tell, tell us. It's called Monarch on Fox. It's three generations of a country music family starring Susan Sarandon and wow. Trace Atkins and Anna Friel. It's a really good old-fashioned soap, a lot of mayhem, murder, and uh, a lot of good music. Mayhem, murder, music. That's good. That is good. That is good. <laughs> so, what do you, What do you aspire to now? Oh, gosh. Um, I don't know. I mean, I like to, when I like something, I like to see it happen. Um, I think, I think it's like that. Um, I have, uh, we have a wonderful show called uh, Perfect Couple that we start shooting in March. That's an L, based on the Ellen Hildebrand book, Perfect Couple. I don't know. I like doing what I like to do. Grimsburg is the John Hamm animated show that comes on in 2023. I, I, if I like it, I would love to do it, you know, and still care about it and have the energy to still do it. Uh, this summer after we launched Elvis, uh, on the advice of Bill Masters, who's the great, uh, man in my world, I took a rest. Hmm. <laughs> that was good because I really needed it. I was just really burnt. So um, that was good. And now I feel, you know, kind of ready to get back into some of this stuff. So how, how many projects do you, would, would because there, I, I'm, I'm sure like there's so many projects that come to you. And if you like all of them, how do you, what do you do? I mean, you, you, you can't do all of them, obviously. No, so, mostly I can't do a lot anymore. Right. Uh, you know, it used to be I had a large company and I had, you know, I could have 15 things in development where they call it in development. Now I really, really am selective about everything. There is no, I don't, I don't really have the bandwidth to do a lot. A lot of what's happening now was, you know, it, as I said, 10 years it took to do that. And so things that were around before are happening now. So it seems like there's a lot like, oh my God, she must be doing so much. But that was over, uh, you know, an arc period. I, I just, I hope I'll be able to continue to do what I'm doing. And, and while I still like doing it and it's fun, it's a great career. Uh, it's hard. Um, and a lot of disappointments involved. In fact, most dis mostly just, I mean, I've had the good side of it and I've had an incredible run, but, you know, every day is like pushing that rock up the hill. It never gets any easier. Yeah. Yeah. Well, listen, this has been so great. Uh, it's been really great to talk to you and congratulations on Elvis. It's uh, just an amazing film. Look forward to Monarch with Susan Sarandon. I think you said Trace Ad Adkins, right? Trace Atkins, Anna Friel, yes. And what network is that? It's on Fox. It's it premieres on September 11th. Cool. And and all the stuff you've got coming up. Uh, thank you so much for doing this. Would love to catch up with you down the line. Thanks, Gail. Thanks, Steve. Bye, Sue. Take good care. See you soon. Gail Berman, there probably one of our most accomplished guests we've we've ever had. And you go like to childhood with her. Yeah, elementary school. 
she moved and she moved sometime in elementary school. And then I got reacquainted with her um, when I was in my late twenties, we were at a, a comedian's wedding and, oh, yeah. um, and somebody came over to me and said, uh, Gail Berman um, is looking for you. And I was like, Gail Berman, Gail. Cause I, I mean, I hadn't seen her since we were kids, you know? And it was like, Oh, Bill Masters wife. And I was like, I, I don't know who Bill Masters was. And he was a comedian. <laughs> yeah. And, um, and then we found each other at the wedding and um, we didn't really like hang out a lot. It wasn't until I moved out here um, that we kind of cultivated a friendship. Yeah. So I'm one of the lucky people who get to break fast on Yom Kippur at her beautiful home um, every year. Oh, that's nice. That's, that's you know, you know, a bunch of people that you went to elementary high, you married somebody that you went to, I think, high school with, right? Junior high. I met Junior Tom. high. Um, I don't know anybody from the day. Like, I couldn't tell you the name of somebody I went to elementary school with. I get f- friend requests from people I went to high school with. I have vague recollections of. Uh, I've got like four college buddies who came out here recently, but that's really it from Kai. You, you cultivate these friendships over a long period of time, better, better than me. Well, these were people that I've always been friends with. Like I was always friends with Tom. Yeah. You know, I mean, there was maybe a couple of year laps after high school. Um, but we, we've been friends pretty much our whole lives. And a lot of my girlfriends, that I know since elementary school, we never stop being friends. Wow. And it, and it just so happens that, you know, a few of them moved out to LA. So we got to see each other. I have, you know, a lot of them that still live back East, but um, we just stayed friends. That's really cool. That's really cool. Uh, well, good, uh, good conversation. I, en- I enjoyed that with Gail a lot. Uh, hey, uh, don't forget. You can subscribe to the Culture Pop Podcast on Apple, Spotify, and at stevemason.com. And Sue, what do we want people to do? We want them to uh, subscribe. We want them to rate. We want them to review. Yes. Did I get it it all? You got it all. All right. Yeah. Like, rate, and review. Subscribe, rate, and review. All right. uh, There you have it. There's your Culture Pop Podcast. Sue Kalinske, thank you very much. Thank you to Gail Berman for joining us. And we'll see everybody next time on the Culture Pop Podcast.